You guys can have a seat. Good morning. My name is Stephen. Welcome here to All Souls. It's good to see you all. There's a recent article in the Atlantic Monthly that talked about the extreme mental health crisis that American teens are facing. Uh, According to the CDC, feelings of persistent sadness or hopelessness are at the highest levels ever recorded, sitting at around 44% of American teens who report that that's how they feel. And so considering, uh, citing numerous studies, the author, Derek Thompson, he highlights these four themes that kind of uh, interact with each other, they, they compound, they amplify one another, and they push that increase forward. And the first thing he notes is, uh, first slide there, yeah, social media use is up. Uh, last year, the Wall Street Journal published its own kind of uh, insider reporting on what uh, Facebook had noticed about themselves, their own internal documents that noted that link between what they found as increased social media use and increased depression, especially among teenage girls. Well, recently there was another uh, study that was out by Cambridge University which found a similar link. The higher levels of social media use decrease mental health, particularly among girls aged 11 through 13. So the second theme is that sociality is down. So it's not just the fact that social media use is up, it's what that social media use is replacing, the time that it's replacing. It seems to be that a lot of uh, significant relationships are being replaced or being mediated by screens. And so that sense of knowing that you are with others, that others are with you, that they see you, that they love you, uh, that sort of thing is down. And it's one of the major things that contributes to our sense of well-being in the world. It's one of those things that helps orient us when it feels like everything around us is, you know, like, like we're caught up in a hurricane. And that's important because, thirdly, the world is stressful. Negative media and media polarization are only feeding that sense of stress. I mean, if you think about it, between climate change, between financial pressures and social approval, political polarization, stress is high. Add to that the specter of world war, uh, you know, racism in our culture, the heels, all of that on the glo- right on the, the tail end of a global pandemic. And it seems as though the world is coming apart at the seams. And this constant negative media stream coming at you via an internet that you always carry around in your pocket wherever you go, it can feel overwhelming. Yeah. And lastly, Thompson points towards modern parenting strategies, which tend to kind of accommodate kids, either by removing them out of situations where they would feel uncomfortable or by solving problems for them. Uh, The images we've all heard, you know, helicopter parenting, snowplow parenting, bulldozer parenting, kind of getting all of the obstacles that make our kids uncomfortable out of the way for them rather than equipping them to have the resilience to deal with a painful world and to find solutions to the problems that they're inevitably going to face in that painful world. And he kind of sums up all the ways these things bounce off of each other and interact with each other in a great closing paragraph. It's a little long, but I think it's worth it. He writes, the world is overwhelming. And an inescapably negative news cycle creates an atmosphere of existential gloom. Not just for teens, but also for their moms and dads. The more overwhelming the world seems to parents, the more they try to bubble wrap their kids with accommodations. 
And over time, this protective parenting style deprives children of the emotional resilience they need to handle the world's stresses. Childhood itself becomes more insular. Time spent with friends, driving, dating, summer working jobs all decline. The internet exposes teenagers not only to supportive friendships, but also to bullying, to threats, despairing conversations about mental health, and a slurry of unsolvable global problems, a carnival of negativity. Social media places in every teen's pocket a quantified battle royale for scarce popularity that can displace hours of sleep and makes many teens, especially girls, feel worse about their body and life. Amplify these existing social trends with a global pandemic and an unprecedented period of social isolation, and suddenly, the remarkable rise of teenage sadness does not feel all that mysterious, does it? It's a really astute piece of cultural commentary, even if it only tells part of the story. And although they experience all of these feelings more acutely, it's not just teenagers who you know, feel like they live in a world that is spinning out of control. It names that experience that we have all known. That the, the center, it feels like it sometimes it cannot hold, like we're caught up in a storm, all of these elements bouncing in and around each other. In fact, about an hour before church started this morning, I checked the headlines of the news and saw that there was another mass shooting, this one in Buffalo, New York, this one done by a white supremacist who wrote that he wanted to kill as many black people as possible. How long Oh Lord, how long do we have to live in a world marked by this madness? How long will the world seem like it is out of control? Because when you don't have control, it's hard not to feel desperate. It's hard not to feel fearful. It's hard not to feel like you are all alone in this mess. But that's exactly when you need to know that not only that God is near, but that God has not abandoned you. So we pick up again this morning in Mark's gospel into a scene where Jesus does what only God can do and he does this so that he can reveal to his disciples the heart of who this God is. And we see that through his presence, he does not steer his disciples away from the storm, but he stands with them in the middle of it. So if you would, turn with me to Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. It's a little textual note there. This is Mark's way of saying that Jesus' ministry is on the move. He is leaving the uh, predominantly Jewish area of Galilee and going across the water to the Decapolis, to the predominantly Gentile part of the Mediterranean world. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. And there were other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waters broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped and Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. 
Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified. And they asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Now, Almighty God, we come to you hoping to hear a word that can only come from you. And we ask that that word would penetrate into our hearts, into the anxious stirrings that go on with us. God, we come with heavy hearts. We come mourning those ten lives that were lost this, just recently. We come asking that you would speak peace into our storm. And not just into ours, but ours of the world. We ask this in the name of the one who is the word made flesh, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Mark starts out describing a, a long day that is just another, you know, long day and a string of really long days that Jesus faces. Jesus and his disciples, they are out in the boat. Uh, He is meeting the needs of the crowds. These people have been coming up to him, you know, pressing in on him with all of his, all of their needs. They've come to, to have their, 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 diseases healed, the demons cast out of them. They've come to hear his teaching and the crowd gets so big that Jesus has to go out on a boat in the, a little ways off from the shoreline of the lake. And he gets out to them to teach them as he sat out along on the shore. And finally, exhausted, ready for a break, Jesus tells his disciples, I'm done. It's time to go. Mark puts it like this. Let us go over to the other side. And so leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. I I love that little detail, just as he was. He'd been out there teaching all day on a moving platform. I I remember when I was, uh, my first day of teaching high school, I came home and I collapsed once I opened the door. I didn't even make it to the bed. I fell asleep on the floor. I woke up three hours later exhausted. Jesus has been doing this all day on a moving platform. Ben Witherington, a biblical scholar, calls these little things irrelevant details. And what he says is that they are the mark in ancient literature of authentic eyewitness testimony. Jesus, anyway, the, the picture is that he is at peak exhaustion So he heads back, he heads to the back of the boat and he just crashes, he's worn out, worn out by the crowd, worn out by their demands, worn out by teaching. I mean, how many of you feel like that when you go home from a hard day's work, right? You're just ready to just collapse. You've got all these issues, all these demands kind of crowding in on you. It starts maybe in the morning when you do the whole merry-go-round of getting breakfast ready for the kids and then shuffling them off to school and all that. And then you get to work and you've got all of those deadlines kind of facing, all those demands from others. You, you drive home and you listen to the radio. You listen to these current events. The sense of desperation starts to set in. And then something happens. 
Something happens to one of your kids at school. And all of these strategies that you know of, they, they, they can't seem to mend the broken hearts of this kid that you love. And one at a time, those things, you can kind of handle them. But then they come crowding in all at once, and you've got to deal with them all at the same time. It starts to feel like a storm is coming. You can see it on the horizon. And so exhausted, spent, you would love to do nothing more than take a page out of the, the, the book of, of Jesus and his disciples and just sail away anywhere where you can leave all of that stuff behind, find just a moment of solace. But somehow, isn't it always the case that just when you are running in the red, just when you are you're most exhausted, just when you're your most sleep deprived, you're most tired, you're already depleted by the day-to-day things of everyday life that have worn you down, that you find that the challenges are just getting started. Jesus and his disciples are out there at sea. The sky grows dark. The wind begins to threaten. It begins to howl. And the waves, they start to beat against the hull of this boat. And pretty soon the disciples are terrified that they are going to die. Let me see if I can set the scene. There is, this is an image of the Sea of Galilee. It sits some 700 miles below sea level. So it's a pretty low spot on the earth. And then somewhere off to the west, there are, you know, 30 miles to the west and the north is Mount Hermon. It's this mountain that sits about 9,000 feet high. And so the cold air from the mountain comes down and starts clashing with the warm air that's coming up from the Sea of Galilee. And as a result, there are some pretty impressive thunderstorms and some squalls that break out on this lake. In fact, I'm told that if you drive your car and you park out on the shore side at one of the restaurants there, they will often have signs that say, do so at your own risk. You may not have a car when the water rises. And so here's the scene. Jesus and his disciples, some of them are fishermen. They've been on this sea their whole lives. They, they know how to navigate a storm. So this must have been some pretty impressive storm, right? But maybe there's also something else going on. You see, because in, in the whole, the first century Jews, they were not seafaring people. They tended to leave that up to their, their neighbors to the north. In fact, every time the sea is mentioned in the Old Testament, something bad happens. The sea is a place of of great fear. Think of Jonah fleeing Nineveh, you know, big storm, whale, all that stuff, right? And the sea, it kind of serves as this cultural metaphor for everything that is unpredictable, everything that is uncontrollable by any power except for by God's power. But it's this place where, where chaos lives, where darkness dwells, the place where fear and destruction are let loose on the world. And so put yourself kind of in the mindset of the story. The sea was not a place that you go to for a relaxing cruise. The sea was the borderland between order and chaos, and they were going right out in the middle of it. A buddy of mine who sails quite often told me that at a certain point, you're in a storm, physics just takes over. There's nothing you can do about it. He said that if a boat goes into a wave that is higher than the boat is long, your boat's going to get pitched end to end, and that is it. And so you can imagine these guys frantic with activity. Right? I, I picture George Clooney and Mark Wahlberg in a perfect storm. 
That kind of deal. Everybody's yelling. Everybody's panicking. Everybody's freaking out. They're doing everything they can to kind of haul down the sails, to steer into the wind, yelling orders at one another. All the while, the waves are getting taller. The sky is getting darker. It's as though the forces of evil are unhinged. They're angry. They're threatening. And in the midst of all their panic, the disciples, they look over at Jesus, laying down at the head of the ship, asleep with his head on a pillow. And, and they see him and they let out this desperate, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? How many of us have been right in that spot? You're caught in a storm. You're looking out at the world that feels like it's coming apart and you ask the question, don't you even care? It's the question at the core of all of our heartbreak and all of our desperation when the world feels overwhelming, when we're most exhausted and there is no spirituality, there is no worldview, there's no theology, there's no philosophy of life that can sidestep the unavoidably painful and deeply personal question, God, if you are powerful, if you are just, if you are loving, then how can you be asleep when I am suffering? I mean, if you're powerful and loving, then you must be blind to injustice. If you are loving and you are just, then you must be powerless to stop all of the pain that I am in. Or maybe it's the question that the disciples fear the most. God, if you are powerful and just, then maybe you just don't care. We all know what it's like to face that question. Watching someone that you love slowly fade as mental illness turns their life upside down, it upends all of the dreams that you had, all of the hopes that you had for the future. Or the relationship that you thought was the one stable thing that you could count on in the world gets torn apart by betrayal. You walk out, the sky grows dark, wind picks up. Pretty soon the waves are taller than the little boat that you're sailing in. And yeah, I mean, maybe you, you've kind of, you know, arranged your whole life to steer clear of this kind of disaster, but now you're about to capsize. And so you look over at Jesus and the prayer just comes falling out. Don't you care that I am drowning? Where are you? Why are you asleep? I don't have to ask if you feel that way. You know, the thing that strikes me as I read this story, every time I read it, is that the disciples don't ask Jesus, hey, do you have the power to do something about this? They already know the answer to that question. They have walked with Jesus. They have spent significant amount of time with him. They have watched him speak life back into a person that was so far gone by spiritual oppression. They have seen him speak life back into a, a mangled human body. They have seen somebody walk be lowered into a room and then walk right out of that room carrying his own mat. They know what Jesus can do. They know his power. They don't doubt that. They ask the question that cuts right down to the heart. Do you care? But more than that, do you care about me? Do you care about what's going on in my little boat that's sinking? I have a friend who had this deep and, and vibrant faith. Always a, a joy to kind of hear about, but always talk just in ebullient ways about what God was doing in his life. And I watched that 
faith slowly get dismantled and shattered into a thousand little pieces as he sat in a hospital room for a month pleading with God not to let his newborn son die. And none of the theological abstractions, none of the Bible verses about there will be suffering in this world, none of that was bigger than the storm that upended his life, he felt. And after a while, understandably so, he just went off the rails for a little while. He would leave his wife for days. He'd go on these benders. He'd, he'd black out drinking, not knowing where he was. And sometimes he would call me up in the middle of this time and say, just, just to pick a fight. And I just listen. And behind every single intellectual objection that he had was this emotional root, this question, where were you, God, when I cried out? Because if you cared, you would not let this happen to me. Well, in the middle of that, Mark tells us that Jesus is remarkably calm. He doesn't get up and, and panic. He's at home with the Father, even in the midst of a storm. And imagine the, the range of emotions that the disciples felt when they saw that would range from confused to flat-out frustrated. But it's his way of showing when he gets up, it's, it's in response to the lament of his disciples as if to say that I'm not going to show you my power by preventing this storm from coming, but I'm going to show you my power by being with you in the middle of it. And when he does this, he doesn't, you know, like brace himself. He doesn't roll up his sleeves and conjure a spell all Dr. Strange-like. No, he just simply speaks, be still, quiet. That's it. To a hurricane, Jesus simply says, quiet. The way that you and I would talk to like an unruly dog, right? And the crazy thing is, the storm obeys him. The wind dies down, Mark writes, and it was completely calm. The wind and then the water. If you've ever been on a mountain lake in the morning when it is perfectly still and you can see a mirror-like reflection, to go from a storm to that at the power of his voice, And after all this happens, he turns to his disciples with a question of his own. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? It seems to Jesus, faith isn't supposed to be a trick that keeps us in the dark about the reality of storms, but it's supposed to be something that builds resilience in us when the storms do come. And the way that Jesus is using the word here isn't about doctrine primarily. It's not about the power of belief. In fact, whenever the word faith appears in the New Testament, maybe it is better translated as trust. And Jesus isn't asking his disciples to check out mentally, to believe blindly. He's asking them to trust in him. Faith is not simply a matter of belief or doubt. It is a question of where we place our trust. Tim Keller gives this analogy of a... Of a of a branch. He says, imagine you're falling off a cliff and then sticking out of this cliff is a branch that's strong enough to hold you, but you don't know that yet. As you fall, you just have enough time to grab the branch. And so you don't do all the mental calculations about asking, you know, how, how, how can I be totally sure that this branch is going to save me? No, all you have to do is have enough faith to grab out, put your hand out and grab onto the branch. And he writes, that's because it's not the quality of your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith. 
It does not matter how you feel about the branch. All that matters is the branch. And Jesus is that branch. Jesus questions, why are you afraid? Where is your faith? I mean, on the face of it, these seem like really strange questions, right? I mean, on one level, it's like, it's really clear why they were afraid. They were in a storm. They were sinking. They were about to die. They were being devoured. But so often when Jesus asks questions, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. It's because like a good rabbi, he's trying to get at the question behind the question. He's looking to bring some, something deeper to the surface. That's the thing that really needs dealing with. It's as if he's saying to them, are you afraid that I don't care? Because if I did care, then I wouldn't have let this happen to you. Are you afraid that my love isn't bigger than this storm? And I think when it gets down to us, that is the question that is at the heart of all of our fears too. It's one thing to trust that you are God, but it's another thing to trust what kind of God are you? Are you a God who cares? Jesus doesn't stop the storms from coming, but by his grace, he is already with us in our little boats when they do come. And as I have been reflecting on this passage all week, the thing that strikes me is that the disciples are afraid when the storm hits at the very beginning. But after everything is calm, that's when they're terrified. There's a a subtle shift in the language. They are absolutely terrified petrified at who this Jesus is. They are more terrified when everything is calm than they were in the midst of the storm. They ask the question, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And I think the reason Mark ends this little scene here with that question kind of hanging in the air because that is the question that all of our trust hinges on. There is more to Jesus than the disciples will ever know. There is more to Jesus than we will ever know. And yeah, this storm, it had immense power and they they couldn't control it. But Jesus, he gets up and speaks a word and he shows that he has infinitely more power. He is doing the kinds of things that only God can do, which means that the disciples don't have any control over him. And I think that is the thing that terrifies us, a God that we have no control over. Nature is a powerful thing. It's going to grind you down. It's going to wear you out. Even if you live a good long life, eventually your body is going to give out. And if you have ever been through uh, something as, as terrible as an earthquake... Or if you've ever seen the the devastation of a forest fire, even from a distance, you have seen nature's raw and violent power. It is overwhelming and it is something that is beyond our capacity to manage. And the thing is, you cannot manage Jesus either. Yeah, but what if I go to him? What if I call out to him and he doesn't do things the way that I want him to? Or what, what if I, I call out to him and he still breaks my well-crafted plans? Or, or what if I go to him and it still doesn't make sense? Am I any better off? Mark is saying, yeah, there's one big difference. Nature is indifferent. But Jesus is full of steadfast love for you. 
Jesus is the very presence of God come to bring the reign and rule of heaven over all of the earth, which means that he is the king of over all of the things that keep you awake at night, all of the storms that hit your life, all of the anxieties that come and fill your heart with fear. He himself is your peace. He has come to be with you whether you notice him or not. And that is the invitation to all of us It's okay to wake him up. It's okay to call out to him. Maybe even before you start all of your frantic paddling around, call on him with all of the doubts and all of the faith that you can muster. Call out in your anxiety. Call out in your fear. Because at the end of the story, maybe it was the disciples who were sleeping the whole time. They had the power that created the universe in the boat with them. And they didn't think to wake him up earlier. Jesus wakes them up to something that only being out of control can show you. And they discover that the one who had the power to calm the storm actually cared for them. Then their fear turns into awe. And Jesus is saying, if you knew how much I loved you, you would have nothing to fear because I am with you. Even if the storm were to take you, I am with you and where I'm going always leads to resurrection. It's impossible, we think, when the storms come, when the, when the waves threaten to upturn our world. It's impossible for us to think that we can be calm, right? I mean, all we know how to do is paddle around frantically. The thing is, we know something the disciples don't know yet. We know the rest of the story, that Jesus is going to face the ultimate storm, that he is going to rise to destroy destruction, to break brokenness, to put an end to death. And every time, in fact, we come to this table, we are reminded of that storm. We're reminded of the storm that he faced on the night that he was betrayed when he asked his disciples to stand with him and they were nowhere to be found. When he asked his father, is there another way? And then he faced the storm head on. And in this broken bread, in this poured out cup, we find an answer to the question, does God care about you? What kind of God is this? the kind who gave everything. The waves crashed in. They threatened to overthrow and he stood firm. He did not abandon us in that storm. He will not abandon you in the storms that you face and one day he will return to still the storms forever. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.